This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Far Below by Robert Barbour Johnson. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria Podcast. It runs 44 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Far Below by Robert Barber Johnson With a roar and a howl, the thing was upon us, out of total darkness. Involuntarily, I drew back as its headlights passed, and every object in the little room rattled from the reverberations. Then the power car was by, and there was only the clackety-clack, clackety-clack of wheels and lighted windows flickering past like bits of film on a badly connected projection machine. I caught glimpses of occupants briefly, bleak-eyed men sitting miserably on hard benches, a pair of lovers oblivious to the hour's lateness and all else, a bearded old Jew in a black cap sound asleep, two Harlem Negroes grinning, conductors here and there too, their uniforms black splotches against the blaze of car lights. Then red tail lamp shot by, and the roar died to an earthquake rumble far down the track. The three-one express, my friend said quietly from the battery, on time to the minute two. It's the last, you know, until nearly dawn. He spoke briefly into a telephone, saying words I could not catch, for the racket of the train was still in my ears. I occupied the interval by staring about me. There was so much to be seen in the little room, with a strange diversity of apparatus, switches and coils and curious mechanisms, charts and graphs and piles of documents, and, dominating all, that great black board on which a luminous worm seemed to crawl, inching along past dotted lines labelled 49th Street, 52nd Street, 58th Street, 60th. A new wrinkle, that, my friend said. He had put down his phone and was watching the board with me. Lord, I don't dare think what it costs to install. It's not just a chart, you know. It actually records. Invisible lights. The sort of things that open speakeasy doors and rich men's garages. Pairs of them based approximately every twenty-five yards along five miles of subway tunnel. Figure that out on paper, and the total you'll get will hardly seem believable. And yet the city passed the appropriation for them without a murmur. It was one of the last things Mayor Wilker put up before his resignation. Gentlemen, he said to the finance board, it doesn't matter what you think about me, but this measure must go through. And it did. There wasn't a murmur of protest, though the city was almost broke at the time. What's the matter, man? You're looking queer. I'm feeling queer, I said. Do you mean to say that the thing goes that far back, to Walker's time? He laughed. 
It was a strange laugh that died eerily amid the dying echoes of the train far down the tunnel. Good Lord, he gasped. To his time, man, Walker hadn't served his first term as mayor when this thing started. It goes back to World War days, and even before that. The wreck of the train, I recall, passed as a German spy plot to keep us from going in with the Allies. The newspapers howled bloody murder about alleged confessions and evidence they claimed they had. We let them howl, of course. Why not? America was as good as in the war, anyhow, by then. And if we'd told the people of New York City what really wrecked that subway train, well, the horrors of Chateau Terry and Verdun and all the rest of them put together wouldn't have equaled the shambles that rioting mobs would have made of this place. People just couldn't stand the thought of it, you know. They'd go mad if they knew what was down here, far below. The silence was worse than the roar had been, I thought. The strange, echoing, somehow pregnant silence of vast emptiness. Only the drip, drip of water from some subterranean leak broke it. That and the faint crackling noise the indicator made as its phosphorescent crawling hinted at 68th Street, 72nd. Seventy-eighth. Yes, my friend said slowly. They'd go mad if they knew. And sometimes I wonder why we don't go mad down here. We who do know. And have to face the horror down here. Night after night and year after year. I think it's only because we don't really face it that we get by, you know. Because we never quite define the thing in our own minds, objectively. We just sort of let things hang in the air, you might say. We don't speak of what we're guarding against by name. We just call it them, or one of them, you know. Take them for granted, just as we took the enemy overseas, as something that's just down here and has to be fought. I think if we ever did let our minds get to brooding on what they are, it would be all over for us. Human flesh and blood couldn't stand it, you know. Couldn't stand it. He brooded, staring out into the tunnel's darkness. The indicator crackled faintly on the wall. Ninety-second Street, ninety-eighth, a hundred and first. Beyond a hundred and twentieth Street, things are pretty safe. I heard my friend's voice as I watched. When the train reaches that point, you see a green light flash all clear. Although that doesn't mean absolute safety, you understand. It's just what we've established as the farthest reach of their activities. They may extend them at any time. Although, so far they haven't done so. 
There appears to be something circumscribed about their minds, you know. The creatures of habit. That must be what's kept them in this one little stretch of tunnel. With all the vast interlocking network of New York's subway system to rove in if they chose. I can't think of any other explanation. Unless you want to get into the supernatural and say it's because they're bound to this particular locality by some sort of mystic laws. And perhaps it's lower than the other tunnels, chiseled far down into the basic bedrock of Manhattan. And so near the East River you can almost hear the water lapping on quiet nights. Or maybe it's just the awful dankness of the tunnel here, the fungoid moisture and miasmic darkness that suits them. At all events, they don't come up anywhere else except along this stretch. And we've got the lights and the patrol cars and three-way stations like this one, with ten men on constant duty from dark till dawn. Oh, yes, my boy, it's quite a little army I command down here in the night watches. An army of the unburied dead, you might say. Or an army of the eternally damned. I've actually had one of my men go mad, you know. Two others had to be placed in sanitariums for a while, but they got over it and are serving here still. But this fellow, well, we had to machine-gun him down like a dog, finally. Or he'd have got one of us. That was before we got the dark lights placed, you see, and he was able to hide out in the tunnel for days without our being able to find him. We'd hear him howl sometimes when we patrolled, and see his eyes shining, just as their eyes do in the darkness. So we knew that he was quite gone. So when we finally ran him down, we killed him. Just like that. No bones made about it. Put, put, put. And that was the end. We buried him down in the tunnel too. And now the trains run over him as he lies. Oh, there was nothing irregular about the business. We filled out full departmental reports and got the consent of his relatives and so on. Only we couldn't take the poor fellow above ground and run risks of people seeing him before interment. You see, there were certain alterations. I don't want to dwell on it, but his face. Well, the change was just beginning, of course, but it was quite unmistakable, quite dehumanizing, you know. There would have been some excitement up there, I'm afraid, just at the sight of the face. And there were other details, things I only found out when I dissected his body. But I think I'd rather not go into them either, old boy, if you don't mind. The whole point is, we have to be rather careful down here, all of us in the special detail. That's why we have such unusual working conditions. We wear police uniforms, of course, but we aren't subject to ordinary police discipline. Lord, what would an above-ground cop make of having every other night off and every day to himself, and with a salary that, 
Well, a corporal down here gets as much as does an inspector up there. But at that, I think we earn our pay. I know I do. Of course, I can't tell you what my salary is. They made me promise never to disclose it when they hired me from the Natural History Museum back in, well, I don't like to think about how long ago that was. I was Professor Gordon Craig in those days, you know, instead of Inspector Craig of NYPD. And I'd just returned from Carl Akeley's first African expedition after gorillas. That's why they brought the thing to me for examination, you see. After that first big wreck in the subway that had only been opened less than a year, they'd found it pinned down in the wreckage, screaming in agony from their lights on its dead white eyeballs. Indeed, it seemed to have died from the lights as much as from anything else. Organically, it was sound enough, save a broken bone or two. Well, they brought it to me because I was supposed to be the museum's leading authority on apes. And I examined it. Believe me, I examined it, old boy. I went for six days and nights without sleep or even rest, analyzing that dead corpse down to its last rag and bone and hank of hair. No scientist on this earth ever had a chance like that before and I was making the best of it. I found out all there was to be found before I collapsed over my laboratory table and had to be taken to hospital. Of course, long before that, I had told them the thing wasn't an ape. It was vaguely anthropoid structure, all right. And the blood corpuscles were almost human, quite shockingly so. But the head and the spade-like appendages and the muscular development were quite unlike any beast or man on this earth. Indeed, the thing had never been on this earth. There was no doubt of that. It would have died above ground in half a minute, just like an angleworm in the sun. And I'm afraid my report to the authorities didn't help them much. After all, even a fellow scientist would have found it a bit difficult to reconcile my classification of some giant carrion-eating subterranean mole with my ravings about canine and simian developments of members and my absurd insistence on startlingly humanoid cranial development and brain convolutions indicating a degree of intelligence that, well, there's no use going into all that now. I firmly expected them to order me up before a sanity commission when I reported my findings. Instead, they offered me a position as head of the special subway detail, and a salary that was, to say the least, fantastic. It was more a month than I'd been getting a year from the museum. Because, you see, they deduced much of the stuff for themselves, without needing me to tell them. They had facts they'd deliberately withheld from me, not wanting to influence my report. They knew that that train had been deliberately derailed. The mutilated track proved that beyond all doubt. 
No less than three ties had been taken up and laid some distance away down the tunnel, and the condition of the earth about the wrecked cars showed conclusively that extensive mining and sapping had taken place there. It was like a gigantic mole hill, only worse. And while I'd been analysing stomach fluids and body tissue to try and find out what my subject fed upon, they'd been burying secretly and with most elaborate precautions the half-desiccated corpses of a half-dozen men and women and children who, well, they hadn't died in the wreck, old boy. They hadn't died in the wreck any more than that screaming thing that hid its eyes from the light when they found it pinned in the wreckage, where it had been caught while trying to drag a dead victim out. What a hideous shambles that place must have been before the wrecking crews got there. Mercifully, of course, there was total darkness. The poor devils who were merely injured never knew what charnel horrors were going on in the Stygian depths about them, nor cared, no doubt, in their agony. A few of them gibbered afterward about green eyes and claws that raked their faces, but, of course, that was all set down to delirium. Even one man who had his arm chewed half off never knew. Surgeons amputated the rest immediately, and told him, when he regained consciousness, that he'd lost it in the wreck. He's still walking the streets today, blissfully ignorant of what almost happened to him that night. Oh, you'd be surprised, old boy, how you can hush a thing up if you've got a whole city administration behind you. And believe me, we did hush matters up. No newspaper reporter was ever allowed to see the wreck. Freedom of the press or no freedom of the press. The government wanted to appoint a commission to investigate. We squelched it. And by the time the crews had cleaned out the smashed train and removed the last victim, the special subway detail had gone into action. And it's been on steady duty ever since, for the last twenty-odd years. We had a terrible time at first, of course. All these modern improvements weren't available then. All we had were lanterns and guns and handcars with which to patrol nearly five miles of tunnel. It was Mrs. Partington sweeping back the sea all over again, only worse. A handful of puny mortals against hell itself, in the eternal darkness of these long, gloomy tunnels, far below the city. There were no more wrecks after we took over, though. I'll say that much. Oh, an accident or two. How could we prevent them? We did everything we could think of. How we worked in those early years. Once we sank a shaft fifty feet deep in the earth, where we'd seen queer disturbances beside the train tracks, and heard queerer sounds. 
and once we blocked up both ends of the tunnel for a mile stretch and filled it with poison gas, and once we dynamited. But why go on? It was all useless, utterly useless. We couldn't get to grips with anything tangible. Oh, we'd hear sounds sometimes on our long, dismal patrols in the darkness. Our little lanterns, mere pinpricks of light in these vast old concrete vaults. We'd catch glimpses of glinting eyes far off, find fresh earth piled up where only a moment before there'd been hard-packed cinders and gravel. Once in a while, we'd fire our guns at something white and half-seen, but there'd only be a tittering laugh in answer, a laugh as mirthless and savage as that of a hyena dying away in the earth. A thousand times I was tempted to chuck the whole thing, to get back above ground to sunshine and sanity, and forget the charnel horrors of this mad Nialathotep world far underneath. And then I'd get to thinking of all those helpless men and women and children, riding the trains unsuspecting through the haunted dark, with evil out of the primeval dawn burrowing beneath them for their destruction. And, well, I just couldn't go, that's all. I stayed and did my duty, as the rest did, year after year. It's been a strange career for a man of science, and certainly one I'd never dreamt I'd be following during all the years I prepared myself for museum work. And yet I flatter myself that it's been a rather socially useful career at that, perhaps more so than stuffing animals for dusty museum cases, or writing monstrous textbooks that no one ever bothers to read. For I've a science of my own down here, you know. The science of keeping millions of dollars worth of subway tunnels swept clean of horror, and of safeguarding the lives of half the population of the world's largest city. And then, too, I've had opportunities for research here, which most of my colleagues above ground would give their right arms for. The opportunity to study an absolutely unknown form of life. A grotesquerie so monstrous that even after all these years of contact with it, I sometimes doubt my own senses, even now. Although the horror is authentic enough if you come right down to it, it's been attested in every country of the world, and by every people. Why, even the Bible has references to ghouls that burrow in the earth. And, even today in modern Persia, they hunt down with dogs and guns, like beasts, strange tomb-dwelling creatures, neither quite human or quite beast. And in Syria, in Palestine, and parts of Russia. But as for this particular place, well, you'd be surprised how many records we've found.
how many actual evidences of the things we've uncovered from Manhattan Island's earliest history, even before the white men settled here. Ask the curator of the Aborigines Museum out on Riverside Drive about the burial customs of island Indians a thousand years ago. Customs perfectly inexplicable, unless you take into consideration what they were guarding against. And ask him to show you that skull, half human and half canine, that came out of an Indian mound as far away as Albany. And those ceremonial robes of aboriginal shaman, plainly traced with drawings of whitish, spidery things, burrowing through conventionalized tunnels, and doing other things too, that show that the Indian artists must have known them and their habits. Oh yes, it's all down there in black and white, once we had the sense to read it. And even after white men came, what about the early writings of the old Dutch settlers? What about Jan van der Rees and Wolter van Twiller? And even some of Washington Irving's writings have a nasty twist to them, if you realize it. And there are some mighty queer passages in the history of the city of New York. Mention of guard patrols kept for no rational purpose in early streets at night particularly in the region of cemeteries, of forays and excursions in the lightless dark, and flintlocks popping, and graves hastily dug and filled in before dawn woke the city to life. And then there's the modern writers. Lord, there's a whole library of them on the subject. One of them, a great student of the subject, had almost as much data on them from his reading as I've gleaned from my years of study down here. Oh, yes, I learned a lot from Lovecraft, and he got a lot from me, too. That's where the, well, you might call the authenticity came from in some of his yarns that attracted the most attention. Oh, of course he had to soft-pedal the strongest parts of it, just as you're going to have to do if you ever mention this in your own writings. But even with the worst played down, there's still enough horror and nightmare in it to blast a man's soul, if he lets himself think on what goes on down there, below the blessed sanity of the earth's mercifully concealing crust. Far below. We figured out, we who've been studying them all this time, that they must have been pretty numerous once. No wonder the Indians sold this place so cheaply. You'd sell your home cheaply, too, if it were fairly overrun with monstrous, noxious vermin that... But, with civilizations coming, they were fairly decimated, killed off, pogromed against blasted with fire and steel by men whose utter ruthlessness sprang from soul-shuddering destation, who slew and kept silent about their slayings, lest their fellow men think them mad, until finally the blasted remnant of the things went far underground 
burrowed down like worms to charnel depths that, well, we don't conjecture just where, but we think that there's some fault in the basic bedrock of the island, some monstrous cavern whose edge this lowest of all subway tunnels taps, and which lets them through somehow into the tubes. Oh, it took us a long time to find all that out. At first we thought we had to patrol the whole subway system of the city. We even had guards out under the river, over in Brooklyn and Queens. We were even afraid they'd get into the upper levels of the tunnels, perhaps into the very deserted streets of Manhattan during the pre-dawn hours. We had half the police department down here in those days, even the mounted force. Yes, indeed, though God knows what even a trained police horse would do if it ever came face to face with one of those things. But horses were faster than the hand carts we used then, and could cover more territory. But as time went on, we got things pretty well localized. It's only in this one stretch of tunnel that the danger is, and only here in certain hours of the night. Don't ask me why they never come up in daylight, for it's always night down here, you know, hundreds of feet below the surface. Maybe it's the constant passage of the trains. They shuttle by at two-minute intervals all day long, you know, and until the Broadway theatres close at night. Only for about four hours of the night is there a lull, when long miles of tunnel are lifeless and deserted and silent, when anything could come and go at will in them and not be seen. And so it's only in these hours that we really worry, you see. It's only now that we're vigilant and ready. Although, of course, it's no longer warfare, you understand. We hunt them now. They don't hunt us anymore. We run them down howling with terror. Kill them or capture them as we will. Oh, yes, I said capture. A half dozen times we've had a sort of mad Bronx Zoo of our own down here. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say a living Madame Tussauds Chamber of Horrors. I have cages in my laboratory, and there have been times when it seemed judicious for influential people above ground to, well, to realize just how important is the work we're doing down here. So when we have a really stubborn skeptic to our program, we take him in there, hand him a flashlight, and let him train it himself on what was prisoned there in total darkness. And then we'd stand by to catch him as he fainted. Oh, a lot of city officials and politicians have been down here. Why not? They couldn't possibly speak of the experience afterward. They'd just be locked up as lunatics if they did and it made them much more liberal about funds. Our menagerie was a great success. Only we just couldn't keep it going very long at a time. We'd get so soul-sick at the very proximity of the creatures that we'd have to kill them finally. 
There was just no putting up with them for any length of time. Oh, it's not so much the appearance of the things, or even what they eat. We've got an unlimited supply of that from the city morgue. And to anyone who spent half his life in dissecting rooms, as I have, it might be a lot worse. But there's a sort of cosmic horror the things exude that, well, it's quite beyond description. You just can't breathe the same air with them, live together in the same sane world. And in the end, we'd have to gun them and throw them back underground to their friends and neighbors, who were waiting for them, apparently. At least we've opened the shallow graves a few days later, and there'd only be a gnawed bone or two there. And then, of course, we kept them alive in order to study their habits. I filled two volumes with notes for my successors who'll carry on the fight when I'm gone. Oh, yes, old boy, it will always have to be carried on, I fear. There's no possibility of ever really wiping them out, you know. All we can do is hold our own. The fight will go on so long as this particular tunnel is occupied. And can't you just see the city fathers consenting to abandon twenty million dollars worth of subway tunnels for nothing? I'm sorry, gentlemen, but you see the place is infested with... God! What a laughing stock any one would be who even suggested that above ground. Why, even in our own furrows, when we walk sunlit streets among our fellow men, with God's own blue sky above and God's own clean air about us, even we wonder whether all this foulness isn't just a bad dream. It's hard up there to realize what can go down in the crepuscular earth, the mad, gnawing, eternal darkness far below. Hello? The telephone was ringing. Somehow, I didn't listen as he spoke briefly into it, perhaps because I was listening to something else, to a faint crackling from that great blackboard on the wall, where one little light, no glowing worm this time, only one minute spark kept flickering oddly on and off and on again. Seventy-ninth Street, it marked, over and over. Seventy-ninth Street. Seventy-ninth. My friend hung up the phone at length and stood up. Queer, he said softly. Very queer indeed. The first in months. And tonight, now, while we're talking, it makes one wonder, you know, about those supernatural telepathic powers they are said to have. Something went past in the tunnel outside, something that moved so fast that I could scarcely make it out, just a little low platform on four wheels, with no visible engine to propel it, yet it scudded along with the speed of a racing car. Uniformed men rode the bucking thing, crouching with glinting objects in their hands. Riot car number one, my friend said grimly. Our own version of the squad automobiles above ground, 
just one of the little electric hand cars used in subway construction, but souped up by our engineers until it'll do nearly eighty miles an hour. It could traverse the whole sector in less than five minutes if it had to, but it doesn't, of course. Another one, also with machine gunners aboard, left a hundred and fifth street at the same time. They'll meet somewhere along the tunnel's length, with the um. Disturbance in between. Let's listen to them. He crossed the room to the strange apparatus, threw switches and adjusted dials. There was a burring and a crackling from what looked like an old-fashioned radio amplifier that stood on one of the cabinets. Microphones, every hundred feet along the tunnel, said my friend. Another small fortune to install, of course. But a great leap forward in our efficiency. A man listens all night long at a switchboard, and you'd be surprised to know what he hears sometimes. We have to change operators pretty often. Ah, there we are. Microphone number two hundred and ninety, approximately a thousand feet below one of the busiest corners, even at this hour of the night, in all the great metropolis. And listen, hear that. That was a sound which brought me out of my chair—a strange, high tittering, blasphemously off-key, that merged into a growl and a moan. There we are, my friend grated. One of them certainly, perhaps more than one. Hear that scratching, and the rustle of the gravel. All unsuspecting, of course, that they're broadcasting their presence, unaware that we modern human beings have got ourselves a few supernatural powers of our own nowadays, and unaware that from both directions death is sweeping down upon them on truckling wheels. But a little moment more, and ah, hear that shriek, that howling. That means they've sighted one of the cars. They're fleeing madly along the tunnel now. The voices get fainter, and now, yes, now they double back. The other car. They're trapped, caught between them. No time to dig, to burrow down into their saving mother earth like the vermin they are. No, no, you devils! We've got you, got you. Hear them yell. Hear them shriek in agony. That's the lights, you know. Blazing searchlights trained on their darker custom bodies, burning, searing, withering them like actual blazing heat. And now, bratatatat, that's our machine guns going into action. Silenced guns with maxims on them, so that the echoes won't carry to the upper levels and make men ask questions. But throw slugs of lead for all that, into cringing white bodies and flattened white skulls. Shriek, shriek, you beast from hell! Shriek, you monsters from the charnel depths! Shriek on and see what good it does you. You're dead, dead, dead. Well, you blasted fool! What are you staring at? To save my life, I couldn't have answered him. I couldn't look away from his blazing eyes. From his body crouched as if he would spring at me across the room, from his teeth bared in a bestial snarl. 
For a long moment, that tableau held. Then suddenly he dropped into a chair, flung his hands up over his face. I stood regarding him, my mind sickly ticking off details. God, why had I not seen them before? That lengthening of jaw, that flattening of forehead and cranium. No human head could be shaped like that. At last he spoke, not looking up. I know, he said softly. I felt the change coming on me for a long time now. It's coming over all of us, bit by bit. But on me the worst, for I've been here the longest. That's why I almost never go above ground any more, even on leave. The lights are dim down here. But I wouldn't dare let you even see my face in sunlight. Twenty-five years, you see. Twenty-five long, dragging years down here in hell itself. It was bound to leave a mark, of course. I was prepared for that. But oh, great powers above! If I'd for one instant dreamed what it was to be, worse, oh, how much worse than any mark of the beast. And it's spiritual, you know, as well as physical. I get cravings sometimes, down here in the night's loneliness. Thought and charnel desires that would. Blast your very soul if I were to whisper them to you, and they'll get worse. I know, and worse until at last I run mad in the tunnel, like that poor devil I told you about, and my men shoot me down like a dog, as they already have orders to do. If and and yet, the thing interests me. I'll admit. It interests me scientifically, even though it horrifies my very soul, even though it damns me forever. For it shows how they might have come about, must have come about, in fact, in the world's dim dawn. Perhaps never quite human, of course. Perhaps never Neanderthal, or even Piltdown. Something even lower, closely linked to the primeval beast, but that, when driven underground into caves and then beneath them by man's coming, retrograded century by uncounted century, down to the worm-haunted darkness, just as we poor devils are retrograding down here from very contact with them. Until at last, none of us will ever be able again to walk above in the blessed sunlit air among our fellow men. With a roar and a howl, the thing was upon us, out of total darkness. Instinctively, I drew back as its headlights passed. Every object in the little room rattled from the reverberation. Then the power car was by, and there was only the clickety clack, clickety clack of wheels and 
lighted windows flickering by like bits of film on a badly connected projection machine. The 415 Express, he said heavily. From the Bronx, safe and sound, you'll notice. Its occupants, all unsuspecting of how they were safeguarded, of how they'll always be safeguarded. But at what a cost! At what an awful cost! The 415 Express. That means it's dawn, you know, in the city overhead. Rays of the rising sun are gilding the white skyscrapers of Manhattan. A whole great city begins to wake to morning life. But there's no dawn for us down here, of course. There'll never be a dawn for poor lost souls down here in the eternal dark, far, far below. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Brian. And we're going to talk about Far Below by Robert Barbour Johnson. First published in Weird Tales, June, July, 1939. Um, I I was wondering like where I got the idea for talking about this, but then I realized uh, just, like I don't know, yesterday, that I had watched the movie uh, The Midnight Meat Train. Um. Oh, yes. Late at night, and it was a pretty damn scary movie, and then I forgot about it. Um, Probably tried to wipe it from my memory. Uh, And then I, I don't know, I came across this story, uh, maybe through the audio drama. Did you guys hear hear the audio drama adaptation? No, no. What about you, Paul? You never did? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, There's a, a cool company, I think they're out of Los Angeles, um, they're, they've retaken up the name Suspense, which, you know, is a very famous, um, mm. American, mm-hmm. uh, radio drama series, um, anthology. And, um, they're doing a ton of great, uh, adaptations, especially of things that are from Weird Tales or very early, um, a lot of public domain stuff. And it's great. Um, and they do a very straight up, um, retelling of this which is not true of any of the other adaptations really if if they are even adaptations um inspired inspired by the story yeah yeah and i um i think that that the combination of those two things and and finding it in the magazine uh made me think this is uh this is an underground story in a in a couple of ways not just literally underground it's 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 surprising how how far the inspection, inspection, the infection of it has spread, <laughs> um, without us knowing about it. Like I didn't realize that there were so many connections to things, and I'm not sure, like the makers of a lot of them, you would even know. What do you think? I think it's kind of like chi- um, Russian dolls of references within references, sure. and I think you know some people are drawing on kind of ideas of. Um, well, just that kind of hint that's in Lovecraft's Pigman's model with the painting Subway Accident. Right. Uh-huh. And then other people are drawing on this story directly. Then other people are drawing off Deathline, which seems to adapt to this. Um, uh, there's also um, 
Uh, there's, a, there's an Arthur Conan Doyle story about a, a prehistoric survival in a cave. Um, the mystery of Blue John Gap. That's right. Which might, might be feeding into this and might have fed into Lovecraft in the first place. So. That's an interesting <laughs> it's a, one, yeah. It's, it's a veritable rabbit's warren through uh, <laughs> the nitrous pits of the Narlathotep darkness of the earth. I think that phrase is used in every movie adaptation of it. Uh, it's a rabbit warren down there. Right? <laughs> Um, which, uh, especially in the UK adaptations, or, I mean, uh, let's see, are they adaptations? Uh, Paul, which movies did you see? I saw Chud and I rewatched Escape from New York. I just forgot about Chud. That's the one I was, <laughs> I was like making a list of all that, the ones. That's the one you told us to see first. I know. <laughs> I, I, it was the one that came to mind, but when I started doing the research, there's just tons of them. They're everywhere. <laughs> so I, I saw Chud in the 80s, and I remember it being creepy. Um, and uh, rewatching it, it actually holds up pretty well. I, I still think it's probably something that over on another podcast I do, Skippy and Fanti, we probably will watch it someday for Torture Cinema if we hit the 80s again, because it's got that very 80s vibe and kind of gauzy feel. And it's not bad, but. It's very 80s. Yeah, it's a cheap 80s movie. Um, but And the dialogue is atrocious. <laughs> and, and, the, and the logic of the characters is, is atrocious. The, the soup kitchen manager uh, slash priest <laughs> or Sorry. father or reverend or whatever the hell he is, he, he's so cynical. And, and it's not like a world-weary cynical. It's more like um, I'm on acid. Cynical. <laughs> um, so I was struck. Now that I remember it, I was stricken by how uh, similar it is to Midnight Meat Train. Uh, not Midnight Meat Train. To uh, Raw Meat, aka Deathline. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get a chance to see that one, Paul? Unfortunately, no. I didn't get a chance to see that one. Mr. So Jim tell Moon, us about it. Mr. Mi- Mr. Jim Moon just watched it. I. I yes. Yes, I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I I've, I barely finished it. I was watching it uh, on YouTube, and I said, "God, this thing's really long. There's nowhere for it to go." And it was it was only 87 minutes apparently, but the upload has like choice scenes re re uh, recapitulated after the credits, which makes it seem like it's longer than it is. That's uh. that, that's a very 80s sort of style. Let's let's show you the stuff you liked in the movie again. I think that's right. Yeah, remember this scene? <laughs> Getting yeah. nostalgic for uh, stuff that just happened <laughs> half hour ago. That's kind of fallen out of fashion. I mean, in in movies these days, to because yeah, movies are long enough. You don't need to uh, pile ten minutes of stuff you've already seen in a movie, or or or. I guess the most common thing is now people will think back on stuff that happened in the movie before the movie's over and you'll see scenes or oh, bits yeah. of dialogue. Yeah, that's a sort of an 80s thing too. Yeah, uh, it's like... It's just oh, bad yeah. storytelling, I guess, is what it is. It's not well, sure no, it's a... have a have an attention scan bigger than that of a gnat, but, you know. <laughs> well, the 80s end montage mm-hmm. usually comes from the fact that Distributors used to insist the film had to hit a certain running time right. to be classed as a feature film, and it was an old dodge 
of you pad out the credits with a montage of greatest hits from the movie to, you know, get that extra five, ten minutes you needed. I think John Carpenter did the same thing, except with with the black screen opening credits and a very long musical take. Right. So it's it's the thing. And it's it just like it's ten minutes of credits with just one character, uh, one actor name and great music in the background. But, you know, that doesn't cost very much. It's just him at a <laughs> synthesizer. Right. <laughs> he, he he does his, he does his own music. I know we've gone way barbell, but he does his own music. He's put out his own albums. He he actually does do good stuff. I mean, sometimes oh, no, he I'm not his movies. I'm just saying he it's it's it his out. way of you know because it, his movies are short. Um, and in I I didn't specifically rewatch uh, Escape from New York, even though I said I would. I just watched the scene um, that's oh. related. Um, but. The thing about Escape from New York, right, is that after I saw it in the 80s, it seemed much bigger than it, like everything's bigger in my memory of it than when you rewatch mm. it. So the bridge mm-hmm. that they cross from, you know, Manhattan to the, New Jersey or whatever it is. To Queens. It's a 59th Street okay. Bridge. Okay. So that bridge is like basically a, a one lane bridge in the film. It, it Maybe it's two lanes, but it's very narrow. It's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's much smaller than the real bridge in the real New York. Trust right. me. Right. Um, so you 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 kind of forget about that when you're a kid and you you see the poster, right? That's the thing. I I was always like, wait a second, the Statue of Liberty's in the movie, but the head is not on you know Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that the scene we're talking about. It's. It's a nice little head fake for the actual movie. Like, I mean, there's there's a whole there's, and they actually even mention later on the the woman he meets who then gets abruptly killed. That there is a whole society of chuds basically underneath New York. So even below the layer of criminals, there's all these cannibals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's hinted at that they're they're cannibals. It doesn't explicitly say it, but you know it's oh, the end of the month the, and they're hungry. I found the president. He's been eating for dinner. Yeah. So yeah, right, that's yeah, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> um, apparently that um, the actress was um, who who gives that speech. We never learn her name in the film. Female inmate, I guess, is her name uh, in the script. Um, she was married to, uh, was it Kurt Russell or, or to, uh, yeah, I think it was to Kurt Russell at the time. Not that that's particularly related, but, um, I just think it's, it's, they have this weird like scene where it's almost like a mini romance, right? They share cigarettes or whatever. And then, oh, she's eaten. And then, and that whole, that whole introduction to me to the world of people living underground um, I think that that's probably how most people interact with this story. They've never heard of it. Um, they've seen something that's been heavily influenced by it, and then it's just passed. You know, they passed over it. Just like every time you go on the subway, you you don't think about all the people who who died down there. Or I, I really like that um that uh Deathline film, Raw Meat. Even though I also could barely get through it, which is a very strange thing to say, I could barely get through it, and I really liked it. Why? Explain to me, Mr. Jimun. You must have seen this more than once. Why it has that appeal? <laughs> um, I don't. I think 
the thing with Deathline is, I mean, the first time I watched it, um, <clears throat> it was oh years ago. It turned up on late night TV. And it was a movie I'd heard lots about. It was highly praised, and um, to me, it just seemed the pacing seemed really weird it's and very off. Weird. And um, it was only kind of when I watched it a second time a few years later that things started to sort of click into into place for me, because it's kind of it's very it's weirdly it's it does a lot of the things the Texas Chainsaw Massacre does before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of the same imagery, but it also has that same kind of the camera is just like an observer following the characters, and it's almost like a documentary kind of fashion. Mm-hmm. But the film very- story doesn't really doesn't sell you that and from what i'd read about it i was going oh it's got christopher lee it's got donald pleasance i'm expecting something from 1972 to be a lot more campy and hammer horror and there's monsters in the tunnels inspector (laughs) and and that isn't kind of what what you get yeah and i think it's very disorientating because it's kind of it feels like a late 70s film because it's very nihilistic Mm. and very sort of minimal uh, and it's, it's really odd. It's a film out of its time, but the more I watch it, the more I actually really like it because yeah. it is just, I mean, partly I actually now I know that area of London is set in actually rather well. And a lot of it looks a lot, pretty much the same with those tube stations in particular. <laughs> um, and it is, it's a really interesting sort of snapshot of London at that time. And, and now I get a lot more of the subtle references about kind of uh, the old boys network and mm. pushing up scandals with politicians and uh-huh. um, student protests. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's very well connected, but I, I, don't, I don't see anybody making the connection. Only way I found it is just by doing searches for subway monsters, basically. And and seeing the connections other people have made between different movies, but you're right. There's there's a a very slow camera process, but it doesn't fit with the with the way you know the actors do the scripting. Like like uh, Donald Pleasance's character, he's kind of an asshole, but you kind of like him quite a bit. <laughs> he's he's mean. He's he's a thief. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, a bully. He's a sexist. <laughs> He's all of those things. And yet, you know, seeing him, like, getting a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever and, and getting mad at the person who's called him. And, oh, no, you're right. Uh, I'll send a car. And then he gets his, his teapot from the previous, you know, <laughs> night's drinking and fills his cup and has a drink and, and gets to work. And there's a, you know, when he, when he goes to the, uh, the OBE, uh, man's house, um, he's basically starts looting the place as he's doing the investigation. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost as if the script writer and the, the, the cameraman decided to make two different movies. <laughs> One of them saying, we're going to do, we're going to do it my way. Um, the other one saying, no, nope, no, nope, we're doing it my way. And so it has this strange effect where there's very much slowness, um, you know, following the the camera down a, a rabbit warren of tunnels in the subway and hearing the drip, drip, drip for what, what is like 10 minutes. It feels like 10 minutes of film just following, mm. following this dripping along and then uh, and then 
weird things will happen. Like, you know, the 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 poor kid who's just trying to he didn't want to get involved, and rightly so, because the police are assholes. Um, it basically gets pushed around and shoved around by the police, and then has to go save the girl himself. Right, and and you don't like him. There's no likable characters in the film, but yet it somehow works if you can get past all the, the things that turn you off, including the oh my god, the colors, it's so garish, and it might be just the, the YouTube version. Uh, have you have you seen a cleaner adaptation of it? Uh, well, it's 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 or, a film that's kind of um, I mean I, I've got a copy on DVD. I think yeah. there's I think there's a either just come out or coming out, there is a Blu-ray, which I'm going to be quite intrigued to see, because even the DVD, it, I find it's quite murky. Mm. A lot of it's quite, quite you know, sharp, but some of the dark scenes, it's a bit hard to see all the details. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it on Blu-ray, because I think it's one of those, it's kind of, it looks better on DVD than the, the Pan and Scan TV print I saw, mm-hmm. which was very kind of, either very colourful or very, very brown in places. But uh, it's that kind of the you, you know good a good transfer will make a world of difference to this movie because I mean the sets in it uh, I mean they did a lot of filming on you know actually on location almost guerrilla style I understand mm. but um, the actual yeah you know, the tunnels they they filmed in are just you know, incre- are incredible all these mm-hmm. old disused areas of um, you know the uh, the London Underground and I mean it, it is true I mean cause it's in this movie. It's in Creep as well, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of kind of um, sort of subway London folklore about them. What they call ghost stations, right. which are old stations on the tube line, which are now disused. Mm-hmm. And the most famous one is the one at the British Museum. And the British Museum used to have its own tubeway station where you could go directly there. And now it's just it's all blocked off and just uh, used for storage. I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know there are these kind of uh, ghost stories slash urban legends about you know people on tube trains and will be going through a tunnel and then they'll see lights in the darkness on this station that doesn't exist anymore and mm. figures moving around and <laughs> yeah I, so, I find that interesting uh the whole idea of disused stations there's only really one in new york and it's the complete opposite if you you can see you can see it if you take the right train out of uh, City Hall. As it backs up and heads back north, you can see the station just south of City Hall that that used to be a station. It's actually beautiful. It's got stained glass. It's it's actually brightly lit. It's just in an awkward spot, so it's just like sitting there like a time capsule rather than being an awkward, dusty, disused place where you'd have evil. It's like this little gem that's like sit that you can get get a glimpse of and kind of miss i know they've had tours sometimes where they've let people actually into it. i've never actually gotten never actually been in new york where they've actually been doing a tour i'd like to actually see the place but that whole idea of a lost a lost station you get so like ghost stories ghost trains you start getting into the ideas of when you're burying burying these tunnels in the earth what are you going to find and what's left behind when you move on and i kind of want to talk yeah i i I want before we go too far away from ramit i i want to point out the the one cool thing that it does that 
the other ones don't do. And it, What's that? Mr. Jim Moon pointed towards it, but he didn't actually explicitly say it. Um, that the, the, the monsters are, um, explained early on in the, in the movie by the fact that there was a legend about, or maybe a, actual history about, uh, a, a group of miners who experienced a tunnel, tunnel collapse. Um, mm-hmm. and they tried to dig them out, but it was going to be too much expense and they never did. Um, even though they heard they were alive or they thought there might be enough, uh, of them for them to live as in they could eat each other or something to that effect. Is that, uh, am I getting it, Mr. Jimmon? Yeah, that's it. It's kind of, uh, this, uh, it's an idea that's been mined by a, um, a few other things of, uh, uh, the, the idea of, uh, you know, tunnelers who, get trapped you know down below and they just degenerate in the darkness and adapt mm-hmm. um i think you have a similar legend mentioned in the film the descent yes oh yeah and i know yeah i know kind of if you want to go further you know beyond raw meat it's kind of there's lots of sort of legends in mining communities about how you know miners reported you know after a crash they can hear the dead miners trying to dig Captain, their way out yeah. again and, you know I, I also like the, the other strange thing that we haven't really mentioned about this film is that the we spend a lot of time with, quote unquote, the man, a.k.a. the cannibal, um, who seems to be. I mean, we, he only ever says one thing, as far as I can say, which turns out to be um, mind the doors. Yes. <laughs> which <laughs> and he's an incredibly sympathetic figure uh, through a lot of it. Um, especially at the end, I think some of the reviews are saying that if it wasn't so full of pathos, this would be a, a shocking, um, uh, thing that no one should ever see or something like that. Like, like it should be censored, <laughs> but because it's so full of emotion, it's, it's okay somehow. And I agree. It's, it's, it's a, it's like an exploitative, horrible monster mess movie. Um, he's the, the killers, both highly incompetent, highly competent. <laughs> and, um, he's got, he, he seems to be like trying to keep his wife alive. Is that what he's doing? I think so. And I think by like from the way he dead... keeps putting his hand on a stomach, I, I she's assume pregnant, she's right? pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, this is why he gets increasingly well, careless, I suppose, and desperate is that, you know, he needs to keep the community going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we, at the end, we see like, oh, here's their, it's like a family crypt, right? And all the generations of, of family that have lived down there. It's, it's a kind of a, uh, tragedy horror. And <laughs> you walk out, well, I didn't walk out of the theater, but one would walk out of the theater like, both uh disgusted and feel like you've been cheated and also um satisfied in some gruesome way uh, it, it's very disturbing and it it, it it's interesting because i i would i watched creep first and i i think that creep is a, like a remake isn't it it doesn't say it's a remake i don't think but it is a remake is it not well creep i think I'd be very surprised if uh, the director Chris Smith hadn't seen uh, 
deathline slash raw meat. <laughs> uh, but there, I mean, I think there's a few other things going on in Creep as well. Sure. Um, there's um. Did you see the Henry? One, Paul? What's that? Which did one? You, did you watch Creep 2004? Not not for this broadcast. I've seen it. Okay. Uh, you probably had no idea that uh, it was connected to. Uh, not a clue. <laughs> so, no. No, it, it's it's. I was just saying the whole echoes of echoes and reflections of reflections. I mean, I didn't even until you pointed out realize Escape from New York's cannibal scenes was a connection to uh, Jonathan's story. I so. think it must be. I mean, no, yeah, yeah, even no, if he didn't know sense. where it came from, or I mean, it's possible that that all of this, you know, Mr. Jim Moon's always exploring this idea of you know where folklore comes from and legend. And, how it intersects like it's it's going in both directions right people are generating it and they're also uh taking it from fiction it's it's it, a it, 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 it's a persistent story um i mean that but i'm gonna get i'm gonna wind up going off on my tangents again so i better stop for a moment yeah so let's let's get through <laughs> creep mr jim and i'm sorry i interrupted you well with creep there's kind of i, I think there's a touch of far below to it because mm-hmm. it's kind of the, the titular character, he, we never get a backstory as such, but you get a lot of hints. Mm-hmm. And the hints is that there's been this, what was an old tube station, a ghost uh-huh. station has been pressed into service as some secret medical experiment facility. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was only kind of watching it again last night for you know, for this show that I thought, well, hang on though, you know, is the titular creep, is he not just an experiment, but is he something that, you know, they were experimenting on things they found in the tunnels, mm. things living down there. Uh-huh. Um, and there's an interesting thing I noticed say, last night in viewing it, that he's always preceded by rats. Right. And he's, that he's, ties, has a strange relationship yeah. with them. Either yeah. he, he's feeding them or they're, they're breeding with, like there's some, some, odd relationship other than let's throw rats on the screen and make it creepy. Well, they say, I think that goes back to a story from Henry Kuttner, which oh, sure. is heavily inspired by Pickman's model mm-hmm. in the same ways far below is called the graveyard rats, mm-hmm. which if I remember right, I think it was in one of the pan book of horror stories, which were big in the seventies, uh, which I'm pretty sure Mr. Chris Smith would have read. Oh, it was in a Ramsey Campbell anthology aimed at children for the most horrendous stories which was obviously <laughs> completely brilliant yep. called the gruesome book and which i first found and that was out in 83 and christmas around the same age as me and grew up watching and reading the same kind of you know horror that was available in britain so i'm pretty sure you'd have come across that one as well but in the cut in the story he's about a grave digger who is a uh, unscrupulous shall we say in these earnings because uh, if he notices a, a burial where the deceased has been buried with particular jewelry or fine clothes after the morning when he digs them up again and um, strips them down and sells it on uh, however there's also huge rats in the graveyards which sometimes try and make off with his prey before he does mm-hmm. um, and ultimately he encounters something he'd heard about from other old grave diggers that there was a race of subterranean beings that fed on the corpses of the dead, but also had the power to command the rats. Is it like a rat king, right? Something like that? Or <laughs> well, no, it's more like a, a Lovecraftian ghoul, but Kutner's adding the wrinkle that the, the ghouls have a relationship with the rats and can control the rats. 
in that story, there, there's a scene where he's crawling through the tunnels and he actually sees a dead body that's moving. But it was, yes. it was <sighs> animated by the, the cor- like the rats of, of, um, that are sort of inside of it or moving behind it or something like, like they're using it almost like a puppet. Oh, 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 oh. sorry. Yeah. It's sort of another movie that <laughs> will, t- will tie into this and into uh far below. Well, well when, when we finish creep, I'll bring it up. Well, it, it, we're, we're sort of dancing all around, but I just wanted to point out, we're going to do another book very shortly, Paul. Um, uh, we're going to do the, the gripping hand. Um, but yes. there's a scene like, like oh, that yeah, in the previous yes in the oh, moat God. god's ooh, eye there's ooh, a ooh, ooh. There's yeah that's a, there's a yeah, scene a where scene. the mo the the baby modis or the little modis the, the watchmakers the watchmaker modis that are i don't know the size of basically gremlins <laughs> hey yeah. now we're tying into every 80s movie here um <laughs> they're the size of gremlins they take over a uh, a suit of like a space suit and put a head of a man in it so that people think that it's a it's a man right and, mm-hmm. but they can walk it around and use it uh, use its hand to shoot laser guns and it's the the extensions of horror out of out of lovecraft the the tendrils grow deep and yeah it's a women in pernell but it does yeah mm-hmm. but have either of you two ever seen the 90s movie mimic yeah, that's a great Oh, yes, film. yes. And, I mean, for, for those listeners who haven't seen it, it basically involves large insects in the underground of the New York subway, which have adapted to appear human and are preying on humans. And get, isn't that kind of uh, far below-ish as well? Because you have these not-quite-human yep, creatures. It's up on the roof, right? Yeah. Instead of down below, it's up up high. That that's um, well, I think one of Guillermo del Toro's first movies, actually. Um, and it's based on a uh, yep. short story by Donald A. Walheim. Um, let's see, uh, December nineteen forty-two, in Astonishing Stories. Sadly, Very good. Uh, yes, not, not public domain, but a terrific story. And science fictiony. Uh, the, these these horror stories are all science fiction stories in a certain sense, right? Uh, they don't usually emphasize the science, but in thinking, we barely touched on Far Below, but in thinking about it, I was thinking that the the narr- the main narrator, the guy, the inspector, whatever his name is, I can't remember. Um, he he's actually a scientist as well, right? Um, he starts as a professor and. It's a mad scientist story in a certain sense, except he's got other responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, because he talks about, he says, oh, yeah, my fellow researchers would give their right arm for the information that's, I'm getting. That's uh, And someone actually <laughs> on his team did give their right arm, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe that was a yeah. passenger, but um, in any yeah, case. The passengers in the accidents. Yeah. It made me think it that Unknown maybe, that something, some horror chewed his arm off and ran off with it. <laughs> well, I, I thought it might even be worse than that. I think that the inspector might have chewed his arm off and said, wait, wait, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a, a depravity that is in the story and a sort of a reasonable depravity that is in all of these stories. Like, well, you know, if you're living underground and, you know, there's no food on, on uh, New York Island because it's a prison and they don't feed enough people and, you know, the Duke of New York hogs all the food, 
you got to get your food somehow, right? Um, hey, and, don't mock the Duke of New York. He's a number one. <laughs> He's a number one. Um, <laughs> in in compare, going back to Creep and connecting it up, in that scene of um, where we first see, it's a great little scene actually in in Escape from New York when uh, Kurt Russell's character, uh, Snake Plissken, um, he's just discovered that, you know, his job's going to be made harder by the fact that uh, the president's missing, right? He's not in his pod or whatever. So he takes a, like, a little smoke break, right? And then he's just sitting there relaxing, and it's like a minute goes by. And then this weird guy comes by with a, uh, I don't know, a tire iron and starts tapping on the manhole covers, Right. Mm -hmm. He is uh, like you're saying, Mr. Jim, he's like the rat leader or something. Right. He's the mm. he's calling them forth. He's it's time. Tap, tap, tap. Let's all go. Tap, tap, tap. Um, and it makes we we follow we follow Kurt Russell following that guy. And that sort of leads to a whole great sequence. Um, I don't know what's going on in creep, but it is super creepy. And it's it's different enough that. You know, you can watch uh, Deathline, aka Raw Meat, and then watch Creep, and they're they're not exactly the same movie. In fact, the emphasis on the, all of these films are very strange. Like the Franca Patenta um, actress looking for George, uh, George Clooney, right? <laughs> the beginning of the uh -huh. movie. She she she. Basically, has a lot of empathy for a rapist. <laughs> she's like, yeah, she's not wanting to be raped, but she also wants to save him. I, I understand that. You know, it's nice to be nice to people, but um, it, it's not normal in most movies for characters to have that much sympathy. Uh, but she, she's also a manipulative character. He's a pawn to get her out of that situation <laughs> ah. as well <laughs> of the, you know, if she can show the guard, the wounded man, he'll call an ambulance. He'll open mm. the doors. He'll let her out. She can go to the party and, you know, That's you shall go to the ball too. cinders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all in Rami. Um, it's all connected. Though in creep, I've had interesting, you have this kind of, idea, in all these stories, you have this theme of a uh, degeneration in the dark. Mm hmm. And um, in Creep, you know, kind of what happens, the, the you know, the lead heroine is deliberately, to put you know, find a point out, she's a bitch. She's a horrible, manipulative person who is only interested in other people for what she can get out of them. And, and you know, she starts off the film as, you know, uh, uh, you know, cream of the cream, uh, you know, a yuppie princess. Right. going to go to a party where George Clooney's going to be and she plans to make a pass at him and blah blah blah. By the end of the film she's in an absolute state and mistaken for a homeless per another homeless right. person on the other Right. right. <laughs> it has a nice symmetry, doesn't it? It does. And it just kind of in the same way as like raw meat, there's a strong um there's a strong sort of sense of sort of social satire mm -hmm. <laughs> of different 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 classes feeding on another and another. Yeah. Uh, and and that's you get that in creep as well, but in a sort of in a, in a different way. It's, it's they both have this element of sort of black humour to them as well. Uh, both those movies, I think that's kind of very British, a very British, very British sensibility of a uh, uh, you know 
it's going, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. It's great as well. <laughs> so the, the, the next year is when The Descent came out, and I, uh, I obviously didn't connect that at the time to... Uh, I, d- I probably didn't see it until a few... Maybe the, when the sequel was about to come out. But I'd heard good things about it, and it is... It's like they're not just in, and that that sort of made clear. I, that's one of the things I really like about Far Below is it's not just in the tunnels, right? It's not just in the subway tunnels. It's everywhere on the earth, right? It's in Syria. It's in Russia. It's in a bunch of other countries mentioned. Um, he says that this is why the Indians sold Manhattan so cheap, right? Is <laughs> <laughs> because it was like uh, you know the house with a foundation that's that's very dangerous. Um, the fact that they're, uh, I don't know, in the Scottish Highlands, is that where, uh, is that where the descent is supposed to take place? I don't know, somewhere in the um, UK, isn't it? I'm not sure. It's one of those, I don't think they ever quite say where it is. Maybe, but, um, maybe it's in the States. I don't know. It's, mm. um, well, it's filmed in the UK. Oh, yeah, it says set in North yeah. America. Okay. Exteriors filmed so, in Scotland. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, it's in North Carolina. And apparently he cites the thing, Deliverance, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it's dancing <laughs> around the the um, the subject. Maybe he didn't know about the... Uh, one of the things that he he did, though, I, was, I believe they're white, right? In in the, the, in the descent, aren't the monsters white when they're not covered in blood? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much they're completely like you know the albino, albino cave yeah. dwellers yeah mm-hmm. yeah and um that that's also well shown in the um very humorous um what is it 20 minute long uh monsters straight up adaptation of uh far below is from 1990 <laughs> mm. i yeah. i think i'd seen it too paul but i didn't remember it until i i watched i must have seen that whole series Oh, I, I I saw the whole series. There's only a couple of those episodes that really stuck out for me. This wasn't one of them until I saw it again. Like, oh yeah, I remember this one. Yeah. And it does a yeah. nice little twist um, on the story, changing it a little bit, right? Um, maybe we should talk a bit more about the story. But is there any other any other movies we? Have? Oh yeah, Midnight Me Train. Who's seen this movie? Oh yes, yes. Paul, not I. Okay, it's really scary. I'm not a big Clive Barker fan, mostly because he scares the shit out of me. Um, his obsession with with sort of basically raw meat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> flesh flesh made uh, on the outside instead of on the inside, uh, is really spooky. I didn't know it was a Clive Barker thing at all when I started watching it. I just thought, oh, um, that's that guy from uh, the actor. Who's the actor? Um, Vinnie Jones. No, uh, Bradley the, Cooper. Um, <laughs> he was the guy from uh, Limitless, right? And I'm like, oh, I like Limitless. Um, he seems like, you know, he he'd make a, a, you know, he's one of those actors where, even if the movie's not bad, he's probably not going to make a bad decision to, even if the movie's not a great title, he's probably not going to choose to be in a, in a bad movie because he's. Some actors sort of have a sense of what a good mo- what a good script looks like, and he seems to be one of them. I don't know if that's true, but that that seems to be, you know, like I don't know. Steve Buscemi seems to mostly pick good scripts. I don't know if that that's just he's good in them or what, but that's the sense I got. And I thought, oh, I'll watch this Bradley Cooper movie, 
and it wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> it is based on a Clive Barker short story of the same name. I can't believe it even got made with that title, The Midnight Meat Train. It's going to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of leaving up, leaving it uh, as text rather than subtext. Oh, my God. And it, 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 uh, Mr. Jimlin, can you explain the plot? I don't I don't know how to begin. It's set in New York, right? It's in the subways. It's basically it's it's a similar premise to what ones we've seen before. Is uh, someone traveling home late at night and ends up in the wrong carriage? Right. Um, basically, as they you know they find there's this utterly. I mean, I think that in the the story and the film, the first they go into a carriage and find these well butchered bodies hung up, and um, then obviously the butcher has to deal with the witness. Um, the premise of the film is the idea of there is this unnamed character he's just simply the butcher um and it's his job as it were to uh you know to pick off various people in the the new york subway system and um he takes the meat to feed the real masters of the city Mm -hmm. the old ones who are then these kind of horrible kind of ancient ever-living ghouls who are actually the people who really run the city (laughs) they're the real true city fathers the um uh, the, this is i mean i don't know does bark did barker credit um barbara johnson slash lovecraft like any because the thing <laughs> is is one of the things that's interesting about far below the story is i don't think we know who who's having the story told to them in the uh monsters adaptation i think it was well well shown like they made the choice to have that person be a budget, you know, uh, I don't know, editor or accountant, some some guy whose job it is to try and, you know, cut the fat, right? And so that ending with, with <laughs> yeah, you're going to meet my wife, <laughs> is so um, choice, as you might say. You know, it's a choice ending. Um, <laughs> That's a deep cut. It is a deep cut. In another, in another version, uh, or in the um, suspense audio drama version, uh, she's it's a she, and she's a writer. Um, and I think there's some evidence of that in here. My first sense was that it was a new recruit, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. Um, well, well, that's the sense I always had, but there's that one line of saying... He talks about the press and he says, right. you know, oh, they weren't allowed to report on this. And you know, if you do any, any, any of your writing, you won't be allowed to either. Right. So there's some sort of strange relationship um, between this storyteller and, and the, the person receiving the story. But uh, in the Midnight Meat Train, he's a, a photographer, right, who takes pictures of homeless mm. people. I think that, that goes straight back to uh, the 1972 oh. film, doesn't it? Because um, that's what he, uh, the the main character, is in uh, the student. Headline. Yeah, um, yeah, he's a amateur photographer. Oh no, that's in Chud. That's Chud. Yeah, that's yeah. Chud. Oh, I'm oh, mixing oh, all. Oh, that's why I mix it because I saw Chud, not that one. Sorry. They're so deeply connected, all of these films. Um, and the the nice point that I forgot, but it's mentioned here. He's a vegan. <laughs> Bradley Cooper's <laughs> a vegan uh, photographer, and so this is like. 
ultra horror. It's not just, you know, uh, <laughs> visiting the meat market. It's, it's, um, well, he's going to make, he's going to make the best food because he's, he's grain fed. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then the, the, the horror, like, it's almost as if these could all be in the same continuum. They're all in the same universe. There's something deeply, deeply disturbing about, about the Midnight Meat Train that, that I think it must have started, like, with a lot of Barker stuff. It just starts with an image, right? And then he builds out from that, it, of that, you see, like, a train car with, instead of having people hanging from the, from the subway rods, you know, deliberately holding their holding on they're hanging as in their corpses are hanging from the hooks mm. on meat hooks it must be something like that um because it doesn't make a lot of sense everything else like wow how this guy mahogany the um who's the who's the bad guy um vinnie jones right yes yeah uh, like what what he's how what is his it's is he like the the uh, Craig character in in the 2004 film Creep. Is it? Uh, I I I don't know. You never get a sense. I don't think it ever gives you any hints in the story or the film. But I always have the idea it, it's sort of a deal, um, like the mythological ferryman you get in so many old mm. folk stories. That's an you know someone's content. You know condemned to carry out a certain function normally you know you know ferry somebody across a river and that's their damnation to do that forever until they can pass it on to somebody else it's very and certainly I, I kind of the midnight meter i always have the sense that the butcher is someone who discovered this and you know that he becomes the new butcher and it'll continue until he passes it on to somebody else, you know, this yeah. terrible duty that you know. Yeah, he seems to. He seems to have out. that. He seems to have that sense that uh, Bradley Cooper is going to be the replacement, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, that maybe that's a good thing, and maybe that's why he's been sort of guided to that that position. Um, I, th- I think that's probably a bit clear in the short story, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's one of those, it's very interesting. I mean, I know. Um, as regards to the influences that when um, uh, the story came out, because it was in um, sort of Barker's first published works, the books of blood, which came out in paperback to you no know, great fanfare. And um, mm-hmm. suddenly this huge buzz. I mean, read these short stories. They're absolutely insane. Yeah. And um, at the time I was uh, subscribed to a, a Lovecraft fanzine called Dagon. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. the Midnight Meat Train got mentioned the letter columns a bit because he said, "Oh, it, he references the old ones at the end, is he?" And uh, the actual uh, the editor Carl T. Ford had actually uh, met Barker at a signing in London and actually had asked him about it. And he said, "Oh, is it a Cthulhu Mythos story?" And Barker said, "I beg your pardon." <laughs> <laughs> and so at that stage, uh, Barker was completely hadn't read any Lovecraft at all. So that's uh, but. Then again, you know, Lovecraft had sort of, by, even by the, the 80s, had permeated sort of horror culture and pop culture so yeah. much you could pick up the it's idea that the right? things are old ones or subterranean ghouls without knowing it was Lovecraft. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot without you, Brian. What do you think of uh, 
all the adaptations of (laughs) far below. Did you watch any of the movies that are associated with it? No, but I, I think I may have lived it. Um, wow. I, I was, I was born in uh, New York city in 1967 and, uh, lived in the uh, New York area until 1979. So I took the subway a lot and the subway was pretty terrifying then. Um, I mean, it shows up in Hollywood movies from the period. Sure. Like the warriors as the classic yeah. example. Come out and Death. play. Yeah. Death wish as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. there's the, uh, I mean, in part because the, the crime was horrendous. I mean, it really peaked then. But also there were all these gloomy gothic touches, like um, when the cars went between stations, they would, uh, the electricity would be handed off from one end to the other. So the power would go out, the lights would go out on the train for a second. It would flicker if it was done right. But if it was done wrong, it would take a couple of seconds. So there you are, hundreds of feet below the earth in a little metal tube in pitch black. And, you know, when I was five, that was pretty freaking scary. Um, I remember when I when I was 20, I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time. I went to the uh, metro there. I was blown away that you could have a subway that wasn't, you know, hellaciously terrifying. Oh, my God. Me, too. When I first went to Washington, D.C., I was looking at metro. It's like, wait. Is this what the subway's supposed to be? Yeah. Wow. It's like, it felt like science fiction. I mean, yeah. it, it really did. So my kids got uh, the computer game Fallout 3, mm. which has post-apocalyptic stuff and takes place in part in the metro, which is now totally destroyed. That made me feel really comfortable. You know, So when I'm, when I'm reading Barlow, I'm like, yeah, oh, this is totally it. I can imagine me as a little kid hurtling underground and waiting for these, you know, scary creatures to come out and, and feed on the dead. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I, I can't, I, I don't, I don't think I saw any of the movies, but, uh, well, we, we're going through, it's surprising how many there are. Um, and we're trying to figure out how, how they all connect. I think we should, we should talk some about the story, but I'll just make the list, uh, explicit. So if we're going by chronology, the fir- earliest one's got to be Deathline slash Raw Meat from 1972. If yeah. if if I'm not missing something that's really obvious, I, I don't think horror movies were about the subways before that. I could be wrong. Okay, then uh, I guess we got to move into the 80s. Um, the that what's the chronology here? Uh, Escape from New York has. Um, Yep. The, the crazies coming up from the the the, the sewers, right? Um, because it's it's uh, they're they're running out of food down there. Um, yep. And then what what's the next one? Um, Chud, Chud, I think. eighty four. Yeah, is that when Chud is? And Chud, the whole thing about Chud is it's we're gonna make this explicit. I don't think there's a lot of subway in Chud, if any subway at all. Which is no, maybe it's mostly yeah underground tunnels sewers yeah sewers right right yeah. okay and then is there another eighties one maybe not um, monsters uh, the television show did a straight up adaptation of Far Below um, the only thing that's really different is the ending which has a nice twist to it um, and then we start doing uh, maybe Creep. 
from 2004, which is uh, kind of a remake of Deathline slash Raw Meat from 1972. And then The Descent, 2005. Now, that's not a subway movie. It's not, but it it's this, it's somehow connected, we think, to Far Below, um, in that it explicitly mentioned in the story is that the ghouls have been, quote, attested in every country in the world and by every people. Why, even the Bible has references to ghouls that burrow in the earth. And I tried to look that up. I did not find that, if anybody did. <laughs> no, um, I looked as well. I couldn't get it either. I, I think it must... Uh, I, I, you know, it's surprising because Tolkien has it in Lord of the Rings. Um, gruesome things that not at the center of the abysses or something. Well, um, also, the Barrow Whites, right? Sure. Bar- well, yeah, they're, and they are white. It's a good point. Um, there's a lot of underground monsters, for sure. Um, even, um, isn't there a Jules Verne uh, movie adaptation? Or maybe it's an H. Is Journey to the Center of the Earth? Is that Edgar Rice Burroughs? Isn't there some white, white, uh, white sheeted monsters in one of those movies? I don't, I don't know. Don't, there's oh, furry yeah. monsters, white furry monsters. Well, of course, there's the Morlocks in the, the Morlocks. Time machine. Oh my Morlocks. God! I forgot about the Morlocks. Yeah, <laughs> he really invented chuds, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, it always goes back I, to Wells. Yeah, yeah I guess it all goes back to Wells. It's true. And then, uh, I guess lastly, is the Midnight Meat Train uh, movie adaptation uh, by um, based on the Clive Barker book. And that's from 2008. And that's a lot of... I mean, if you think about um, any other particular story from Weird Tales, um, I don't think anyone has ever been adapted. Or if, I'm not sure they are adapted, but... I don't think any, there's no story that I've read that has this many, um, takes on the exact same sort of thing. And I think it must speak fundamentally to, to the vein that, um, uh, Barbara Johnson is tapping into. Right. I wanted to talk about that. And now Brian's here. Now we can, uh, talk about. Talk, talk about that in detail with with this story and with the idea in general of mm-hmm. so what so so the basic idea is that the and this is an idea that you see in other stuff going deep into the earth like like you you mentioned uh, joining the center of the earth the deeper you go the more deranged not deranged the more bestial and de-evolved you find things so it's almost like you're if you live closer to the center of the earth, you invariably find and or become as, as the story kind of makes explicit, you, you become those monsters because you're further from the sun, you're further from the surface civilization of humanity. You revert to a more bestial and degenerate state where, yeah, you eat people. In thinking about that, um, it's actually interesting because it's the, if you go the opposite direction, you become more heavenly, right? So yes, the monks, be, you know, they live on the the, on mountains. the tops of the world in lamasseries that are ready to ascend into heaven at any moment, right? So that's a very interesting point you're bringing up. Um, anything deep down in the earth is always frightening, and anything right. high up is ascendant, right? It, it reminds me of the Wizard Knight 
worlds in uh, Gene Wolfe's two novels, where you have a yeah. sort of interlocking worlds. The higher up you go, the uh, the more heavenly you become. The more down below, you're more bestial and yeah, degenerate. There's a, there's a great line from the first of those books when uh, the main character finds an angel and by a, by a lake, and the angel's wings just go straight up, you know, right into the right into the heavens. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true, except except Barbara also entertains the opposite. He mentions the uh, ghouls burrowing into Mother Earth uh, mm-hmm. when they're caught, and then, and I, I think in part that's supposed to be perverse, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. It is literally maternal for them, and you could think, of course, about the long, long tradition of humans embracing the Earth as uh, as maternal. There's a there's a great heartbreaking scene in uh, All Quiet in the Western Front when characters mm-hmm. under bombardment dig into the earth for escape where it's the it's the humans doing horrendous stuff that are on top but the mm. maternal safety is below yeah That's i was true. thinking i was thinking actually about you brian and the connections this story has to world war 1 um he explicitly mentions you know the the world war as he's yeah. saying it right and yeah. he calls out a couple of um, battles. I was only familiar. One of them was a uh, a castle, I think. And the other no, it's one, uh, Chateau Thierry, is uh, is not a castle. What is that? Well, left. It, it was the site of a, a horrendous, horrendous long battle. Uh, the U.S. actually participated in 1918. Okay. Uh, and the other one is Verdun, Verdun which right. is in some ways the most notorious in the Western Front. Um, because it, it comes from a especially horrific angle. The uh, German commander decided to attack it. Uh, some historians say this is the first time in history there was no territorial goal. The goal was to draw as many French troops in as possible into the area and kill them. Um, it was purely designed to, quote, bleed France white. Right. And the, the name of the operation, uh, I, I don't speak German, so I believe it's Gericht. Uh, either means the judgment or uh, the gallows place. Wow. Um, and I mean, for the French, Verdun became this, well, they, they did this really innovative thing where every troop, every soldier was circulated through Verdun because it was so horrible. The amount of shelling was beyond anything seen in human history until that point. So basically every soldier, every veteran went through Verdun and the commander there, uh, it was Pétain, who became the uh, the only surviving hero from France to become the head of Vichy France in World War II. But he also issued this famous line, which I'm pretty sure Tolkien is riffing on, which is, even the pas from pas, they shall not pass. Right. Which, you know, Gandalf says to the, uh, to the creature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's another so, uh, uh, creature from deep, deep down, right? They, yeah. they, they delve exposed too deeply. By, that's right, delving too deep. Yep. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, uh, see, I, one, if, if I could just for a second, the yeah. World War One angle has another angle as well uh, for Americans, uh, which was the uh, the amount of violence. Did you catch the bit about them just machine gunning one yep. of the workers? Yeah, yep. the yep. of his family. It's a war. It's it's really yeah. interesting. And yeah. I was thinking of, of the chalkboard, uh, you know, in the control room. It's actually like it's it's like a map of trenches, right? Yeah, it's a very explicitly, if you know, you've got all these markings, all these stations, all these, uh, you know, snaking tunnels going through. It, it's a uh, he's the battlefield commander, right? And he's 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 running a war. 
Yep, he's gathering intelligence, and uh, he's uh, he's got microphones you know, and and uh, everything except for cameras, right? That's right. That's right. He's got flat, you know, uh, illumination too, which was yep. a key part of uh, World War One to have uh, uh, lights shot up, uh, including spotlights and uh, very lights uh, to illuminate the dark battlefield. Uh, so you've got that. I wanted to point out that um, if this had been written by a Canadian instead of written by an American, um, it wouldn't have, the Verdun and uh, Chateau Thierry would not have been the two uh, battles no. mentioned. It would have been Vimy Ridge. Um, Absolutely. Because of the tunneling, right? Yeah. Um, so yep. just look in the Wikipedia entry here. Um, there were the gallery of network tunnels beneath uh, Vimy Ridge in order to, you know, win the battle grew to 12 kilometers of tunnel, which yep. um, I have to remember that <laughs> they're in the battlefield. It's not like, you know, you can bring in the big boring machines, right? Um, this is all hand carved, not, not, um, and it's, they're assault tunnels, right? So th- we're going to send all the soldiers in behind the enemy. It's, uh, it's really creepy. There's a 2008, um, Canadian movie, uh, Passchendaele, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty good uh, and does have some scary bits about people being buried alive. Yep. It's a it's a good analogy for what's going. I mean, in the in the illustration from Weird Tales, it looks like he's got a Thompson submachine gun, um, yeah. and he has a uh, a suppressor on it, right? Because you don't want to disturb the residents uh, up, up up above, right? Anybody living above the streets. But I think in the story, isn't isn't it uh, explicitly mentioned a World War One machine gun? I think it. I think it was. Um, can't remember what the American machine gun was. Was called uh, Maxims. Maxim on the Maxim, yeah, Maxim, cars, yeah. Maxim gun. Yeah. Well, the yeah. Maxim is a French German invention. Yeah, yeah, but I think there's another one, like a. Um, there's a specific, you know, portable, man carried one. But, well, the Thompson became a, a major gun in the U.S. in the. Uh, in the twenties, uh, sure. In the twenties. Uh, for the Maxim gun, I've got to quote Hilaire Belloc. Because he always has this great line: "Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not." Right. <laughs> this is his little about colonial warfare in 1898 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's you know it's fascinating to have all this hooked up to domestic life in America's at that time leading city, and and of course to have be supervised by a guy who was a former university professor. Right. Uh, going back to, uh, I tweeted, I didn't tweet you, uh, Brian, but I tweeted, um, Paul and, uh, Mr. Jim Moon about the, uh, the guy who the professor here worked with, um, during, uh, his, his pre tunnel days. Um, he just returned from Africa, he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what, what was the name of that guy? Akeley. Akeley. Akeley, yes. Had you guys heard of him before this story? Because he's a real interesting figure. I have vaguely, because I believe Carl he Akeley, kind of, right? his exploits were a distant influence on the whole King Kong story. Right. Yeah. To bring him back alive. So he's he's credited with, um, like, a, a, lot of, a lot of the less interesting things he's credited with are basically inventing modern taxidermy. Um, 
which you'd think, well, that, well, nah, why should I care about that? Um, you know, uh, just so you have a moose on your wall that doesn't look as bad as you know it could. Um, he was doing it mostly for museums, uh, natural history museums, and um, apparently he spent he he convinced a lot of museums to f- not to pay him but to fund his expeditions to Africa, where he would go and um, uh, hunt um, yep. specimens, including hunting yep. with a camera. Um, he's apparently the first guy to film apes uh, in the wild. Uh-huh. He was, uh, there's a great picture I sent uh, out on Twitter of him standing beside a uh, leopard that he had killed with his bare hands. Um, wow. And he's got yeah. he's got one hand completely wrapped in bandages and another arm <laughs> covered in uh, bandages and in a sling. Apparently, so this, is in, this is Indiana Jones. It, 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 he's in. He's got an incredibly. Uh, he, apparently, he was stepped on by an uh, an elephant. Stepped on him, almost killed him. <laughs> yep. Um, they, there's a hall in the American Museum of Natural History called the Akeley Hall of African Animals. Uh, I I didn't know his first name, but I I spent lots of time in that hall over, over, over years and years of visiting the museum, and there's there's these beautiful dioramas of stuffed animals from Africa, all sorts from cheetahs to elephant and to the big elephant sitting in the center, and yeah, so his his work lives on in that museum. So that's a nice. I mean, knowing all that background, it makes the. Uh, the uh, narrator, not the narrator, but the uh, the, the main character makes him uh, much more uh, believable. Makes that transition from being a, uh, um, a professor to being a warlord uh, much more convincing. It's true. Um, that's another thing I was thinking of late last night, uh, going into my dreams. Is this is kind of a, the way it's told? It's kind of a. It's it's. Um, who is this guy? It's the 1979 movie by Oliver Stone, not Oliver Stone, the other guy. Oh, you're thinking Heart, you're thinking Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. A- Apocalypse it Now. Apocalypse yeah. no, it's Apocalypse Now, a.k.a. Heart of Darkness, right? right. Where Conrad, you become yeah. the enemy that you... You become the monster in, you, in, in, in the wilderness. That's right. You become the monster that you're fighting. Well, there's uh, there's the great nature line, right? Let's it is it. not to the abyss. You know, let's engage uh, back in you. Right. Yep. And this really is an abyss. Right. Don't spend spend your days and nights in the abyss, lest you spend all your days and nights in the abyss. But that's what he. That, but that's what he's doing. He admits that. Yeah. You know, one yep. day he's never going to get to see the sun again because he's, he's down there forever. Um. It, what is he? His. Uh, their their heads are they shaped like dogs? Are they ghouls? Like like um. Pikmin's model. Yeah, Pikmin's model ghouls. I mean, is that explicitly what it is, Mr. Jim Moon, do you think? Uh, well, that's what Barber's hinting at. And he's, he, I think he very um, clearly tips his hat to Lovecraft by mentioning, you know, Lovecraft and Lovecraft stories. He doesn't spell out Pickman's model, but uh, it actually does tie to two different Lovecraft stories at least. Um, I always took it kind of, this is kind of Lovecraft's Pickman's model is the fictionalized version and barber's narrator is giving us the truth about right. this uh uh these strange you know being sort of sort of part simian part canine and sort of seem with the big mole-like claws for tunneling um 
but you know, he has the the line which um, some people have seen as being very throwaway about being stuck down here in this Nigar Alathotep darkness. And that's a tip of the hat to another Lovecraft story, The Rats in the Walls. Mm-hmm. Another story of a degeneration and cannibalism yeah. and delving deeper and deeper into the earth. Yeah. yeah. But that, that specifically goes to the line in The Rats in the Walls of that uh, comes sort of quite near the end, where it's going to... It was the eldritch scurrying of those fiend-born rats, always yes. questing for new horrors and determined yes. to lead me on, even unto those grinning cannon caverns of the earth center, where Nialathotep, the mad faceless god, right. howls blindly to the piping of two amorphous idiot flute players. Right. And well, it's a reference that throws a lot of people, because we think of Nialathotep in his more um, genial, shall we say, incarnations is like, you know, the dark pharaoh in uh, the dream quest of unknown Kadath or mm-hmm. the uh, the black man in dreams of the witch house. And people often forget this, this strange uh, earlier incarnation Lovecraft gift is in the rats in the walls where he seems to be a god, you know, a demon god in the center of the earth. And this is something that uh, August Derleth picked up on with his, um, very unpopular uh, elemental system of the great old ones. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are puzzled. Why on earth? Yes. Cthulhu water. I get that. Equatha, uh, <laughs> <laughs> God of the air. Okay. With wind to go. Got it. Got it. All right. You've invented Cthulhu, the fire God, but why on earth is Narada the tip, the earth God. And it, it's the rats in the walls. It's the reference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story I was thinking of, uh, maybe it may be influenced by that 2000 uh, or 1990 adaptation where it has that great twist ending <laughs> um uh he's gonna feed uh feed the the sub narrator to his wife um is uh actually the facts in the case of arthur german and his family uh aka the white ape uh by mm-hmm. lovecraft which um <laughs> i think is hilarious um, it's the story of a of of a man who discovers that he, one of his ancestors was uh, a white ape from Africa, um, maybe his grandmother, and uh, he he finds yeah. this out by receiving the box in the mail of her corpse, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like oh it's a family resemblance, and that explains why people thought my features were so strange. And then we learn all this after uh, having read the note of a man who's lit himself on fire poured oil all over himself and lit himself in, on fire in the yard. Um, uh, there's a, there's a um, uh, above-ground symmetry to the... Uh, it's interesting because this is the two different directions, right? Um, in Pickman's model, obviously uh, referenced, uh, maybe spawning a lot of this, um, the Pickman character seems... Is he... Is he turning ghoul because of his time spent with the ghouls, or is he a ghoul because of his ancestry? The theory, oh. the theory mm. posed in in far below, is that we're it, it's all our ancestry, right? That the more time you spend down there, you just turn. It's not the air. It's not the. Um, it's, it's not. not the- it's not the family, which is what Lovecraft is getting at. Right, it's right. Like uh, Innsmouth. I mean, but and here it's very the Greek, species. right? Yeah. It's a very Greek sort of thing. This is more biblical, I think, in that we can degenerate and 
Um, and very World War One y too, where, you know, yeah. we're gonna fight for freedom and it just degenerates into everyone's a monster. We're all the monsters, right? Well you've got the huge, you know, shining achievement of of European civilization by nineteen fourteen, this acme of human progress. Right. Which then, you know, tears itself to bits. Um, you know, the, the idea of progress really gets torn down. And so that you have that. But I think I think the distinction is is with Lovecraft is very important because for Lovecraft you have that um, maybe national or familial genealogy. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Jim Moon, to mention this about uh, Rats in the Walls is a perfect example because it is the family, right? The family, mm. it's the family business. Um, in fact, <laughs> there's, that, there's a great line about, uh, is it Plump Captain Norris? Yes. I mean, I, that, that goes, that the victims go back as well, you know, but those are those are very narrow genealogies. But for Barber, it's it's this, it's ontological, or at least it's the species where humanity can go down. I mean, I think this is the Morlock connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, from well, industrialism and class conflict could lead us to speciate, um, according to uh, proletariat and, and capital. Um, but for Barber, I mean, the whole you know, to be human uh, is to face this possibility of staring into the abyss and then becoming a ghoul. I mean that's that's in some ways uh, very scientific mm-hmm. to think about, um, and not not so much. I mean, at worst for Lovecraft, it's racism, uh, but for here, it's uh, it's it's very different. I, have you guys mentioned the uh, hidden race subgenre yet? Just touched on on the idea of it within Edgar Rice Burroughs and such, but no. Now, yeah. Are you thinking like Richard Sharp Shaver? Shaver, yeah, the Shaver mysteries. Mm. Yeah, uh, I haven't read those. Darrow's, yeah, I was thinking. Uh, oh, about Darrow's. oh, Darrow's. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking. I mean, this is a Victorian thing. Uh, Bulwer Lytton has my favorite, I think, awful example um, called the Coming Race, mm-hmm. which is like a novel. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Uh-huh. It's filled with puns to delight fourteen year olds. Oh my god, it's so. <laughs> but, but you know, there's tons of these where you, you dig down to the earth and you find a hidden species, or you find them under a under a mountain, or in somewhere buried in Africa. Um, so this is a, a, a you know, Burroughs did this, uh, Doyle did this. Uh, uh, what's her name? The uh, oh, I'm blanking her name. I'm sorry. Uh, who did Herland? Uh, Gilman. Gilman uh, Perkins. Yeah, yeah. Another example of, of of the hidden race. But what's what's so this is the hidden race under New York. But the, the grim joke is that it turns us into them. Right. So rather than our, our being able to conquer them or learn from them, uh, they instead, they colonize us and they teach us a new way of being, which is bad. I mean, I can see why this story had a lot of resonance. I, another Lovecraft story that totally fits with this, maybe people didn't know it at the time, is The Mound. Um, yeah. Which uh, is supposedly by Zelia Bishop, but it sounds like her contribution was two sentences. Um, the plot synopsis being: There is an Indian mound near here, which is haunted by a headless ghost. <laughs> Sometimes it is a woman. Um, Go <laughs> right, and uh, Lovecraft writes a massive novelette that uh, basically has nothing to do with that. Um, it's not one of my favorite stories by Lovecraft, but it is, it is a whole world down there. This is, um, you know, uh, it's interesting far below. We actually never leave that room 
with the control panel, right? It's right. all talked mm-hmm. about, and we get the history, but we never leave that room. And that makes it, you know, a difficult adaptation for a film. So uh, I think you have to be rather loose with it. it. If you look at the mound, it's it's kind of the same way. It's all uh, like a document found near the entrance, right? And and yet it's a a, narr- a massive narrative of um, uh, what is a Spanish conquistador who's gone down into this underworld and and basically lived amongst amongst these people and seen their their moral difference and cultural difference and it's a it's an inverted uh high-tech monstrous civilization the sense that we get in far below is that there is they're just monsters right that they have no civilization right Right. um but that's also you know getting it from from the guy who's basically his job is not to exterminate but to completely suppress and yet he finds himself becoming intrigued <laughs> at the process right he he doesn't want to like go up to the surface and try and you know get a tan or anything he's he's trying to see you know let's see where it goes <laughs> <laughs> and that i think is pretty um cool and it, it's it, it takes somebody other than lovecraft uh, although maybe the mound is the proof against it, but it takes somebody other than Lovecraft to uh, to explore it in a different way. It it is sort of takes on a a less um, genetic and more uh, philosophical aspect. When uh, I, I I just love how the economy of this works. Right. Um, one of the things I don't know if you guys mentioned or, uh, or not mentioned saw early on is the description of how the funding came about. Um, so one of the guy, the mayors mentioned is named Walker. Yes. Um, and Walker lost his job over this, we're told. But if you actually look into the history of Walker, he didn't lose his job over this. Um, he lost his job over corruption, money going to the, you know, to his pockets. It's Tammany Hall. And a whole lot of um, very negative shenanigans, including um, a scandal in which the police uh, were running a prostitution ring, running a prostitution ring. And one of the witnesses against them uh, ended up strangled, uh, found in the park. Right. These things happen. Yeah. And uh, and then he retires after. I think Roosevelt basically says, I'm coming after you. He says, okay, I'll, I'll retire. And then he, he goes to Europe for a vacation with one of his Ziegfeld girls. It's like a, um, well, those are the, those are the facts for the, for the public. And, and this story has this, you know, no, we're an efficient organization. We're all the things that you say, or you might be worried about the fact that, uh, an, a corporal down here gets paid like an inspector up there. And yeah, we're part of the police force, but not really. We wear the uniforms, but we're an army, right? It, there's there's a, an amazing um, sort of sense of uh, this is the kind of power fantasy that a kid, you know, has when they're reading about uh, cryptozoology. You know, you're a kid and you, you find out about Bigfoot and your friends don't know about Bigfoot yet. <laughs> it's like, 
Well, see, that's the kind of conspiracy theory that, you know, the CIA knows everything that's going on, and they're doing it for our safety, right? <laughs> the reason we're spending so much money on, right. on the police budget is it's for our own safety. You don't understand. You're not you're not one of us. But if we showed you what was in the menagerie down here, you would... You'd uh, understand. Yeah. You'd understand, right? You'd, you'd give us carte blanche. That's right. Exactly. Um, well, uh, that goes right to um, what's that movie with um, Jack Nicholson where you can't handle the truth, right? He's got this a few good men, yes, a few mm. good men, right? So he's he's making this very impassioned argument, and then I, I'm realizing, well, actually, he's the bad guy, but I don't think a lot of people take when you when you walk away from that movie, you just think, oh, that was a very impassioned, uh, uh, you know, acting scene. <laughs> But the whole point is, he's the bad guy, right? He's he's covering up a lot of horrible shit, and uh, whoever the actor is who's playing against him, uh, oh, it's Tom Cruise, isn't it? Tom right? Cruise. <laughs> he can't hold he can't hold a candle acting wise to the Jack Nicholson passion, and so right. we just forget about the fact that yeah, his um his corruption and budget overruns and sexism and all that stuff are um they're they're actually bad. Um, I don't think. Like, I think if, if you uh, if you look at this this story in the cold light of day, <laughs> um, or the warm light of day, perhaps upstairs, right, not far below, mm-hmm. you would say, well, look, if this is seriously a problem, um, why why don't we just like film it, <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody will be like, wow, that's scary down there, and we'll take precautions because we do that with air, aircraft, right? We take precautions. Well, but, there are some things that your men are just not meant to know. And if you knew that the deepness that was rotting at the core of the earth, right. you would go mad too. So it has to be shut away and dealt with in this haphazard fashion because that's what's best for the world. <laughs> what, I think in the, the, 2009, uh, the 1990 adaptation uh, for Monsters, um, the uh, accountant says something to that effect. Like we should get the government, the federal government involved in this, and that's when the NYPD <laughs> says, like, no, 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 this is our, this is my army, right? It's like so you get protecting- the classic uh, American cop story. Yeah, who's jurisdiction? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, the corruption. Uh, I was just going through my movie collection yesterday, and I found one of these movies about you know New York City police corruption it's not serpico but it was called a really really good one called um the prince of the city with uh, oh yeah treat williams oh yeah terrific film um sydney lumet uh tackling you know what sydney lumet is really good at and um it's this story is kind of uh the opposite of that right it's it's like let's not sweep things under the rug and not show it it's it's like let's expose it to the cold light of day let's make sure that sunlight is the disinfectant um so ultimately i i am not happy with the with the morality of far below but it's so fun well isn't this the principle of the war on terror as well exactly right exactly you know you have uh We'll keep things secret. I mean, this is what the NSA said. Um, right. You know, we we're here to protect you from the ghouls or 
you know, Muslims or, you know, the enemy of the, of the day. I, I'd also link this to another great Lovecraft story, um, which is uh, Mountains of Madness. Because remember uh, the character at the end who is uh, running away from the Shugoth, who starts chanting the name of Boston subway stations? <laughs> and because there's a comparison of the uh, Shugoth hurtling uh, through the uh, right. tunnels in the city, and it's like a subway. And so the other guy, before he loses his mind completely, is just chanting out all the stations on the tube. <laughs> and, and so in this story, that becomes more sinister. And we get that several times. 49th Street, 52nd Street, 58th Street, 60th Street. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other Lovecraft link is, it, 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 it reminds me again of, of a lot of weird fiction writers like uh, Bram Stoker, uh, is bringing as much high tech as possible. So we've got, you know, mm-hmm. searchlights, we've got microphones. And micro, microphones, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, you know, very, very nasty technology. We've got telephones, you know, we've got all kinds of high tech. So it's like the the great classic little Lovecraft story, the statement of Randolph Carter, which is the scariest story about mm-hmm. a phone ever written. Right? <laughs> um, and so a lot of this is by phones. And then you know, Barbara has some fun with this. There's the bit where he's uh, uh, the character is talking on the phone, and he, he builds and builds, and then says hello, you know, just as a you know, because he has to answer the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the technology bits here are are, are really good. Um, I, I was, I have, I don't think I've ever read this before and I was just pleased and delighted. It's really good. It's a tasty story. I, I, I even love the beginning where like, you don't know what's going on, right? With a roar and a howl, the thing was upon us. No, this is a small T in this case, right? Right. Whatever that is out of the total darkness, involuntarily, I drew back as its headlights passed. Oh, it's a train car, right? It's not that bad. Um, passed and every object in the little room rattled from the reverberations right so it, it's, it could be the thing of the monsters in the picture right above it right. Uh, right. we don't know what it is and it, it is sort of overwhelming coming at you out of the darkness like that it, it's um, so this guy didn't write that much there's like five or six stories total this is the only one I've ever heard of um but uh, I'm going to look into more of his stuff because he apparently um, Lovecraft wrote to him or he wrote to Lovecraft. Um, and does, this shows up in uh, Supernatural Horror, doesn't it? Does it? Oh, that I'd, I'd be uh, interested to see that. I could be wrong. Oh, no, it can't be because this is after Supernatural after? Horror. He's dead by 39. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ex- He's explicitly called out. He says... Um, one of them, a great student of the subject, had almost as much data on them, capital T, from his reading as I'd gleaned from my years of study down here. Oh, yes. I learned a lot from Lovecraft. And he I got a that. lot from me, too. Freaky. And, and he has neural flow tip name checked earlier, too. Mm-hmm. Can, can I mention one more thing before we go? Sure. One more link. Um, I'm a huge fan of classic radio. And, and I, I say this in the presence of the great voice here of Jim Moon. <laughs> uh, but there's one classic radio creepy story that uh, really echoes this. Do you guys know Quiet, Please? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, there's there. I, for my money, their best story is called The Thing on the Formal Board. <laughs> yeah, I which, think I've heard of which this is, one. Oh, yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's about a uh, horror on a, on a oil drilling 
right um and they just keep deep, digging deeper and deeper and deeper and then they find well I, I don't want to spoil it for you but you have to listen to it because the script is available online it's a good script but the sounds totally totally make i mean obviously it's radio play but this this is unusually attenuated so definitely listen to this late mm-hmm. at night in the dark preferably in the basement <laughs> um, because I think I haven't seen the one you talked about the uh, monsters version mm-hmm. it may be it may be tipping its hat in the direction of this story from what oh, you said sounds but nice. it's but it has that uh, industrial technology you know we're we're you know for science and for civilization we're digging more and more deeply into the earth um, and that's a good thing and we should do that until we find something wrong mm-hmm <laughs> Here, I'll put this oh. up on uh, on Twitter because it's a it's a nifty story. Uh, well, you have that idea in a lot of these stories of it's not just people digging down; it's the fact that when they dig down deep enough, they meet things that are digging up. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. there's a, a great Doctor Who episode. Uh, there's a lot of old classic Doctor Who episodes that are great, but. Um, uh, from I think it was John Pertwee era, uh, where they dig down too deep into the earth uh, to tap into geothermal energy, right? Oh yeah, that's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Inferno, mm-hmm. and uh, things do not go well. <laughs> things do not go well. He winds up in a parallel world where things are going even worse. Yeah. Nope. Where is that? Is that pre uh, Star Trek uh, Mirror Universe? Or maybe uh, yeah, it must be after. Um, where what's the brigadier Infer- has an eye patch, right? <laughs> yeah, Inferno's like 1970, so yeah, it's after it's after the mm. mirror episode of Star Trek. Well, but yeah, they're, they're, they're clearly borrowing from that. It's like it's let's like have Spock's, evil versions. It's like uh, the brigadier with an eye patch is to Spock's beard. Right? Yep. And <laughs> <laughs> just look. Oh, it's a. It's oh, not. It's no longer you know. Uh, you know, United Nations organization. It's a. It's a basically Nazi organization or something like that. Yeah, it's an imperial empire. And later on, they had a Enterprise episode where they basically show the Enterprise in that universe and how it first interacted with ours from the other side of them messing with stuff. So you have you have evil Captain Archer and everyone else. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my god, Sounds yeah, good. that was that was fun. The actors are clearly having a blast. <laughs> oh yeah. Also, also with Inferno, though, in in our universe, what happens when they drill down towards the Earth's uh, core, they hit um, a huge pocket of uh, green gas, Mm. which causes people who inhale it to start degenerating into feral apemen. Yeah, that's what I was I was pointing Mm. to before the. (laughs) <laughs> we got Before the side with, the, with the with the wonderfulness that is uh, old John Pertwee Doctor Who. I'm pretty sure that's John Pertwee, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. Pertwee. I, yeah. I what I love so much about Pertwee is it was so environmentally interested uh, back in the days when nobody else was interested. Uh, he's got I think there was one called the Green Death. Yes. Green Death, yeah, yeah. Mm. right. Um, Another mining horror story. Yeah, a lot of uh, mm. stuff like you know just. Uh, <laughs> what's going to happen. Maybe there was one with fungus as well. I can't remember. The, there was a lot of them that... Uh, well, there's also the Silurians where um, sure, they're, yeah. they're dig- yeah. digging down to build a, a, an underground nuclear power station and awake a race of alien That's right. reptiles have been asleep since the dawn of time, which, is, which brings has Lovecraftian elements to, to it. Which mm. brings us all the way back to Chud. 
Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is best line. Best line of Chud is call Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that line. Is that in there? Someone's running down the street mm. and they're screaming, "Ah, monsters are after us!" And someone yells at them, "You know, call Ghostbusters." Really? <laughs> is that wow? Uh, wait, isn't Ghostbusters after? No. I'm looking. Uh, 1984. It's the same year. Wow. Mm. Interesting. But what's the what's the that line? There's a British movie or uh, TV movie from the 70s. Um, You're thinking of uh, uh, the one called Deathline because we did talk about no 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 no, no it's about AKA AKA it's about nuclear Lamid. power. Um, it, it's about oh. nuclear power. Edge oh. of Darkness. Oh, Edge oh, of yes. Darkness. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Yeah. I mean, British, British, uh, that's a TV. thriller, right? That's a SF thriller. Really series. gloomy in the seventies. Um, it was remade, yeah, I think. Um, yeah. Maybe and I, Mel I, Gibson or something. Yeah. And I, I won't watch it, but, um, but a key point is that they, uh, they build the nuclear power plant underground and, uh, yeah. the center of the story is going deeper and deeper into caves. And, uh, it's a madness story too, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's partly caused by nukes as, as people get more and more unstable, uh, much like, you know, isotopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's we, we never, never really lose that, that fear, I think, of going no. more deep ground and finding stuff. Um, somebody, uh, when I pointed out that H.G. Wells was uh, the inventor of Chuds, uh, somebody pointed out that uh, on Twitter that uh, actually it was uh, Homer with... Uh, with the um, one-eyed monster, right? The Cyclops. Um, but I, I said, uh, well, yeah, he only sleeps underground. <laughs> you know, when we meet him, he's actually uh, he's coming into his house. He's he's a he's like just a regular farmer. He lives in a cave. He's a, uh, but it 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 all is sort of connected with with you know the. Uh, I think in one of these stories, maybe it's in Descent or something. Uh, they talk about them being Neanderthals or something like that. You know, oh. the, we've driven them underground completely in our our takeover of the surface of the earth. But there's some, there's some, it, it is very um, I think the reason this story works, even for people like Clive Barker, who th- never heard of Lovecraft at the time, um, is that it's something deep in our psychology and it, it'll start spreading spontaneously, whether you had a, a germ of it from somewhere else or not. Just so you know, I'm speaking to you from my office, which is in the basement of my house. <laughs> and the niter, it grows. No, I have machines to take care of the niter. But, uh... <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.